Let's pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, you have showered your steadfast love and mercy and grace upon us even today. Your mercies are new each morning. And so we pray now that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. We pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts that we might behold wonderful things in your beautiful word. And we pray that what we know not, that you would please teach us, and that what we have not, O oh Lord, please give us, and that what we are not, O oh Lord, we pray you'd please make us, all for the glory and praise of your dearly beloved Son, the one who lives and reigns with you together with the Holy Spirit, one God forever blessed and forever praised. Amen. It all began with a single spark. Back in October of 2007, a series of wildfires began burning throughout Southern California. The fires started very small, but drought conditions coupled with the Santa Ana winds picked up the flames and spread them from hilltop to hilltop. The fire was absolutely enormous. Over one million people were forced to evacuate from their homes. Um, authorities reported that 1,500 houses at least were destroyed by the fire. And there were over 500,000 acres of land that were burned. That's 770 square miles. That's larger than Houston, Texas. That's twice the size of Fairfax County. The fire was so huge that according to NASA officials, it was even visible from outer space. And so it took 6,000 firefighters around three weeks to put out the fire. Nine people perished and 85 other people were seriously injured. And according to authorities, this massive fire was caused by a 10-year-old boy who was playing with matches. It all began with a single spark. This morning, we return to our studies in the book of James in chapter 3, verses 1 to 12. And in this passage, we find the most sustained treatment and discussion in all the New Testament on the power and the use of the human tongue. And Pastor James has quite a lot of interesting and memorable and convicting things to communicate to us about our speech. In fact, in the course of this passage, James will liken the tongue to a small spark that can ignite a towering inferno, much like that one in California. You'll remember in our study studies of the book of James that he's writing to uh, Christians, Jewish Christians mainly, who have been scattered from Jerusalem into the Roman Empire because of persecution that began in Jerusalem. And these Christians are going through a series of trials and discouragements. And so Pastor James has written this brief letter in order to help them to grow and to mature as followers 
of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the way that he has written this letter is he structures this whole, uh, this whole letter as a, a series of tests, as it were. Um, tests that are given by the Lord in order to mature us as followers of Jesus. And he has discussed in this passage, in this letter at least, uh, the test of trials, and then the test of temptation, and then the test of how we respond to the truth of God's Word. And then he talked about the partiality test, and then the faith test, whether or not our faith is living and real and active. And then back in chapter 1, verse 26, he discussed this test of true religion. You'll recall that James says back in chapter 1, verse 26, that, that true religion bridles the tongue. James says that if you don't bridle your tongue, then your, your faith, your religion, is utterly worthless. And so after introducing us to the tongue test, as it were, in chapter 1, James is going to administer the tongue test here for his readers in chapter 3. James is going to ask us to open our mouths and to show him our tongues. And what he does in this passage is he actually shows us our tongues and what we find in these brutally convicting verses. We begin to understand that if we would grow in maturity in our discipleship as followers of Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, we must see the importance of our speech as it indicates very clearly the condition of our spiritual health. So let's listen now, beginning in James chapter 3, verse 1. What does James have to teach us about the tongue? Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by very small rudder, wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire! And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? 
Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. My prayer for each one of us this morning is that through our risen Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, that we all would continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of our lips that acknowledge His name. There are four things I want us to see in this passage. And number one, it's this. The tongue is devastatingly difficult to tame. Verses 1 and 2. Number one, the tongue is devastatingly difficult to tame. In verses 1 and 2, James begins with his spiritual diagnosis of the tongue with a warning to those who teach, presumably teachers of God's Word in the local church. And he says in verse 1, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers. And then James gives the reason why. For you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. My favorite seminary professor used to quote James 3.1 and he would refer uh, to it as the verse that made him constantly want to become a truck driver rather than a teacher. Because teachers of God's Word, when they teach, obviously we speak a lot of words. I usually preach a sermon that has about 5,000 words in it every week. And as teachers of God's words, we are not teaching the words of men. Um, Hopefully, by God's grace, when we preach and when we teach, we're ministering with the lively oracles of the living God. And so, James issues a warning right off the bat and says, listen, teachers will give an account. We will will be judged with greater strictness. And so careless and prayerless preachers will have much to give an account for when they stand before the Lord of glory on the last day. Teaching God's Word should cause everyone who does it from Sunday school to children's ministry to those who stand in the pulpits, a reason to tremble. Jesus says that we all will give an account for every single careless word that we have spoken. And so if you teach, be sure, I would encourage you, be sure to be reading and absorbing the Proverbs because we find lots of what James is saying in this passage, in the Proverbs. We read in Proverbs chapter 10, verse 19, When words are many, transgression is not lacking. Chapter 13, verse 3 says, Whoever guards his mouth preserves his life, but he who opens wide his lips comes to ruin. Studies have shown that on average we speak around 18,000 to 25,000 words every single day. And that means that in a year, you will have spoken enough words to produce 66 800-page books. Or another way to think of it, you will spend approximately one-fifth of your life talking. 
And so, brothers and sisters, right at the outset, we need to hear and heed this warning from James about the difficulty of taming our tongues. It should cause us to tremble. Verse 2, uh, verse two. notice what James says. For we all stumble in many ways. And I want you to notice that word, we. James includes himself in the group of those who stumble. We all stumble. We all trip. We all fall short. We all transgress. We all commit sins in many, many ways. We're all sinners. And exhibit A that proves beyond a reasonable doubt that we are all sinners are the many ways that we stumble and sin with our tongues. James says, if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. In other words, if you're fully able to bridle your tongue perfectly, if, you, if you're able to completely master your speech, then you know what you are? You're perfect. You're perfect. The only person who doesn't stumble in what he says is perfect. And if you're able to bridle your tongue, which is difficult, then, then everything else is relatively easy. You're, you're, you're able to bridle the rest of your body as well. In other words, what James is saying is that the tongue is devastatingly difficult to tame. Now I wonder, if you just ponder this for a minute, on your most holy day, on the, the holiest day you've ever lived, on your best day, on your most sanctified day, have you ever made it even through that day without sinning once with your tongue? I don't even think I've made it through breakfast. Now, the reason I ask you this question is because I want you to see how realistic Pastor James is when he's speaking about the tongue. He knows firsthand the difficulty of restraining and controlling his own tongue. And when we read these verses, I imagine at some point you'll be thinking to yourself, man, James is so pessimistic. He just goes on and on and on about how horrible the tongue is and how difficult it is to tame the tongue. He's so pessimistic. Well, I, I want you to see, brothers and sisters, that James, I don't think, is being pessimistic. I actually think James is being realistic. This is biblical realism, brothers and sisters. He's not acting like Tigger. I don't know if you like Winnie the Pooh, but James is certainly not acting like Tigger in this passage. He's acting like a, a sanctified Eeyore. He, he, he's refreshingly pessimistic in one sense, but he's realistic. He's painting a realistic picture. Now, when we read the Bible, Paul the Apostle says that all Scripture is breathed out by God, and it's, it's profitable for four things, for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And I want you to see that in James 3, he is very heavy on correction and on reproof, and that's a good thing. We don't come to this passage to be told how great 
we are at using our tongue. We come to this passage to be reproved and to be corrected. And I want you to pay attention to this challenging diagnosis from Pastor James. You've got to hear what he has to say. So don't turn him off. Listen to what he says. And towards the end of this message, I hope to point out to to, to you other passages in James where he gives some positive encouragement about how to use your tongue. But we want to make sure that we believe beyond a shadow of a doubt what James is trying to teach us here, namely that life and death are in the power of the tongue. Proverbs 18.21 Now James is a wonderful teacher. I, I, I can't wait in glory to, to hear James preach because he must have been an absolutely incredible preacher. The reason I know he was a great preacher is that this passage is just brimming. It's just overflowing with incredible word pictures, with incredible illustrations. Preaching through the book of James is delightful um, because I don't have to think of any illustrations. James just comes up with the illustrations and I just tell you what they are. Um, so let's pay careful and prayerful attention to what James has to say. And the first thing he wants us to see is that the tongue is devastatingly difficult to tame. The second thing I want us to see in verses 3 to 5, point number 2, the second thing he wants us to teach us about the tongue is this. The tongue is disproportionately powerful. Number two, the tongue is disproportionately powerful. Verses three to five. In these few verses, James provides two illustrations to help us understand that though the tongue is very small, it does some very incredible things. The tongue therefore, is disproportionately powerful. Illustration number one, look at verse three. Consider the bit. Verse three, if we put bits into the, the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Now, James must have been around horses growing up or something because he enjoys talking about them. He mentions the bridle up in verse 2. He mentioned the bridle back in chapter 1. And now he mentions a bit, which of course, children, if you don't know what a bit is, a bit is that little piece of metal that goes into the mouth of a horse that, that allows you to steer the horse this way and that way. Now, when I think of horses, I always think of secretariat. You remember Secretariat, probably, some of you. Uh, the greatest thoroughbred racehorse in history. Uh, he won the Triple Crown back in 1973. You can actually go on YouTube tonight, if you want, and watch a replay of his record-breaking victory at the Belmont Stakes when he won by 31 links. It was incredible. It's widely regarded as one of the greatest races in history. Now, Secretariat was six feet tall and Secretariat weighed over 1,200 pounds. And yet this amazingly powerful racehorse, one of the fastest horses in history, was controlled and guided by a five-inch piece of metal 
that was put into his mouth. That tiny little bit caused a huge racehorse like Secretariat to obey every single command of his jockey. And so James says, consider the bit. Illustration number two, consider the ships. Look at verse four. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they're guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. Now James has in mind, he wants us to envision how a small little rudder can guide and direct a large ship, even in the face of strong winds. So in your mind, I want you to envision a ship that's large and that's navigating on a stormy sea. Now, we tend to think of large ships as being a modern invention, but there were lots of large ships in the ancient world. You don't have to study ancient history to know this. You just need to read your Bible. Remember in Acts chapter 27, verse 37, Paul was on a large ship that was on its way to Rome. And you remember, uh, they go through a storm and on their way to Italy and they get sidetracked a little bit and then they, they actually run aground. They, they crash onto the shore there in Malta. And we're told by, by uh, Dr. Luke, actually, Dr. Luke was there with Paul because he says we. And we're told that 276 passengers got off that boat. All of them got off safely. There were 276 people on that boat. Now, what that means is that in the ancient world, that you could get hundreds of people on a ship. There were large ships. But James's point is that these giant ships with hundreds of people on them were guided by something very small. Those ships were guided by a small piece of wood, a small little rudder at the back of the boat. And wherever the pilot wanted to go, he just would turn that rudder. Now, what's, what's James' lesson? He says, consider the bit. Now, consider the ships or the rudder. What's his lesson? He tells us in verse 5, So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. So in other words, a small bit directs a large horse and a small rudder directs a large ship. And while the tongue may be small, it is disproportionately powerful. It can boast of doing great things. The the word there is mega, mega things. So I just want you to ponder brief, just briefly, the disproportionate good that a tongue can do. James is going to be really clear on the bad things that a tongue can do, but let me just take a few seconds and talk about the good things disproportionately that your tongue can do. Proverbs again says this, the tongue of the wise brings healing. Proverbs 12, 18. A gentle tongue is a tree of life. Proverbs 15, 4. Listen to this. Proverbs 25, 25. Like cold water to a thirsty soul, so is good news from a far country. Proverbs 25, 11. A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in a setting of silver. The Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 4, 29. 
Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as that is good for building up or edification as it fits the as it as it fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Just think about that. That's amazing. We can in some amazing way by the spirit impart grace to others by the way that we use our words. So followers of the Lord Jesus Christ should always speak with an accent of grace. Now I can imagine that each one of us can probably remember a time in our lives, maybe when we were going through a trial, maybe when you felt discouraged or all alone, maybe a friend or a loved one, maybe a fellow church member or a pastor or your parents or someone in your life spoke a word to you, maybe a brief word, maybe just a few words in a letter or a phone call or a text or an email. And those words of kindness were everything to you. At that moment, those words, while few, meant the whole world. Gracious words are like honey. They are sweetness to the soul. Proverbs 16, 24. The tongue is a small member of the body, yet it certainly boasts of great things. Our brothers and sisters, we're also very well aware that our tongues can do disproportionately bad things as well. We can inflict immense injury to others by one unguarded word. We can inflict a wound that never seems to heal with one slip of the tongue. David is right when he prays, in Psalm 141.3, Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of, my, of our lips. We need a guard who's marching in front of our tongues because they can do inordinate damage to others. And so in the verses that follow, James wants to illustrate the damage that our tongues are able to inflict on those around us. And that brings us to point number three. Number three, the tongue is dangerously destructive. The tongue is dangerously destructive. Verses five to eight. The tongue is dangerously destructive. In these verses, James basically says that we all carry around concealed weapons. And they're called tongues. James uses several, six by my count, striking illustrations in order to persuade us of the dangerous and destructive damage that a sinful tongue can inflict upon the world. Illustration number one, the tongue is a flamethrower. Verse 5b, how great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. 
verse 6, and the tongue is a fire, end of the verse, setting on fire the entire course of life and is set on fire by hell. What James is saying is that the tongue is like a a flamethrower. It's like a spark that can set ablaze a forest fire. Just think about how quickly, just how quickly a lie can spread. I remember Winston Churchill said once that a lie gets halfway around the world before the truth has has a chance to even put his pants on. I mean, if, if the truth spread as fast as lies did, then preachers wouldn't have to preach as much as we do. And what James is saying here is that the reason that one spark can set a blaze in someone's life from one word spoken, the reason that James talks about the, the tongue being this powerful is he tells us where, where the tongue gets its power from. Look, at, look what he says in verse 6. He says that the tongue is set on fire by hell. James uses the term Gehenna, Gehenna, which if you remember, that's that's a reference to the Valley of Hinnom, which was on the southern outskirts of Jerusalem. And so James, the pastor of the Jerusalem church, would have been very familiar with this awful place. You'll remember that the Valley of Hinnom was where the city dump was for Jerusalem. In fact, one commentator mentioned that even as late as 1996, Jerusalem was still using this part of the city to to put trash and to dispose of, of refuse there. And it's said that the fires that were lit there to burn this garbage and to destroy the garbage and the refuse that was tossed there were constantly burning constantly burning. In fact, sometimes, many times, the bodies of those that the Romans had executed would be dumped there instead of burying them. So if you think about it, the Valley of Hinnom would have been the place where the body of our blessed Lord would have been dumped following his crucifixion were it not for the sovereign purposes of God. And were it not for the kindness and thoughtfulness of Joseph of Arimathea. So you could understand why this, this awful place became such a vivid teaching lesson for our Lord Jesus when he sought to describe the horrors and the torment of the wicked in unquenchable fire in the life to come. And so it ought to be quite shocking to our ears, to hear Pastor James say to us, your sinful speech isn't fueled by difficult circumstances or by difficult people. When you speak like that, your speech arises from the fiery pits of hell. When you slander others, you aren't speaking with an accent of grace, James is saying. Your words actually sound a lot like the great slander himself. An unbridled tongue, the Puritan said, is the chariot of the devil. Illustration number two, James says that the tongue is a world of unrighteousness. Verse six. 
I remember several years ago, a friend of mine mentioned that on a trip that he took to see the dentist, he was in the waiting room and he admired a black and white photograph of what he thought was the surface of the moon. And when he looked at the the picture, there were all these shadowy crevices and craters and shadows. And he remarked upon the picture to the dentist who informed him that that wasn't a picture of the moon. It was actually a greatly magnified picture of the human tongue with all the craters and darkness. And so James tells us that in the tongue, there exists an entire world, as it were, of wickedness. John Calvin wrote about this verse, quote, This slender portion of flesh contains the whole world of iniquity. Illustration number three, James says that the tongue is a defiling stain. A defiling stain. Verse 6, the tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body. A few years ago, we had to replace the carpet in our home because of some water damage. And the day that when the carpet, the new carpet was finally installed, we were thrilled um, until a few weeks later when one of our children, who uh, will remain nameless to protect the guilty, proceeded to walk down the steps and accidentally spilled a huge glass of grape juice right on the new carpet. Well, you may not know this, but grape juice tends to leave a stain. And it took many, many weeks of scrubbing before we were able to get that stain out. Now, I'm certain, I'm certain that you can recall times when you've spoken rashly to someone and just as soon as those words spilled out of your mouth, you were already wishing to get them back because you just knew that they were going to leave a stain. Je- Jeremiah 2.22 says, Although you wash yourself with much soap, the stain of your guilt is still before me, declares the Lord. Illustration number four, James says the tongue is an untamable beast. Verse seven, for every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. When we lived on Capitol Hill, when the kids were much younger, uh, it was only a short drive uh, from our home to the National Zoo. And there you could see lions and tigers and elephants and anacondas and crocodiles and all other manner of wild beasts. And all of these wild animals were held and controlled and overseen in their zoo habitats by the zookeepers. Even even the king of the jungle, the lion. But there's one beast that you'll never see in a zoo. There's one beast that's untamable. And James says, that's the human tongue. No human being, he says, can tame the tongue. It's an untamable tongue. 
beast. Illustration number five. The tongue is a restless evil. Verse eight. The tongue is a restless evil. James used this same word, restless, back in chapter 1, verse 8, to describe the double-minded man who was unstable, who was, as it were, restless, same idea, in all of his ways. And the fallen human tongue is tireless in doing evil. The tongue is kind of like the devil, who is like a roaring lion, who's constantly seeking someone to devour. He's restless, and so are our tongues. Illustration number six, last one. James says that the tongue is a deadly poison. Verse eight, the tongue is full of deadly poison. You'll remember when the Apostle Paul is trying to establish in Romans 3 that all human beings, both Jews and Greeks, both Jews and Gentiles, that all human beings are sinners. And what he does in Romans chapter 3 is he begins to cite and quote from the Old Testament as evidence to bring out in the court of judgment to say, Every human being is guilty in the sight of God. We are all sinners before a holy God. And it's really interesting to me that when Paul quotes from the Old Testament to prove the guilt of humanity, to prove my guilt, to prove your guilt, what does he trot out as evidence? This is what we read in Romans chapter 3, verse 13. As Paul quotes from the Old Testament, he says this, Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Our mouths and our tongues spew venom. Paul says, and that's exactly what James says here. It's telling, isn't it, that the serpent in the garden deceived Eve by speaking deceitful words, and those poisonous words have produced hellish consequences on this earth. So James He shares all of these illustrations because he wants us to see and to really face the reality of how dangerously destructive our tongues can be. And that brings us to the fourth and final point. There in verses 9 to 12, James tells us one final truth about our tongue. And he says there in verses 9 to 12 that the tongue is dreadfully inconsistent. The tongue is dreadfully inconsistent. In these closing verses, he provides one final, as it were, closing argument. One final indictment of our sinful speech. James shows how 
dreadfully inconsistent we are in our speech. Look at verse 9. So don't, 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 look, don't look at your screen or your phone or whatever you're doing to listen. Look at your Bible. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. So what James is saying is that it is completely inconsistent. It's utterly hypocritical of us to, on the one hand, bless and praise the Lord and worship Him, and with the same tongue turn around and curse people who are made and created and fashioned in the image and likeness of God. Jesus said, bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you, Luke 6.28. And James says, James says, for us to use our tongues this way is utterly, dreadfully inconsistent. It would be like a spring or a geyser that one minute poured out fresh water and the next minute poured out salt water. It'd be like a fig tree that, 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 be, that bore olives or a grapevine that produced figs or a salt pond that yielded fresh water. That's utterly ridiculous. And James says that kind of sinful, hypocritical, inconsistent use of your tongue, he says it's a double-mindedness that's really rooted in a duplicitous heart. You see, speech problems, your speech problems, your speech problems and my speech problems are always a heart problem. It's not a circumstance problem. It's not an other person problem. Our speech problems reveal our heart problems. Jesus says that our words are windows into our hearts. Jesus said, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Or as my grandfather used to say, what's down in the well comes up in the bucket. And what's down in our hearts will eventually come out of our mouths. And James's application for us is this, my beloved brothers and sisters, these things ought not to be so. Our speech ought by God's saving and transforming grace be marked increasingly by a kind of benevolent consistency. There ought to be in our speech as followers of the Savior a noticeable accent of grace. I was born in Virginia and I grew up in Tennessee and I lived for several years in North Carolina so it doesn't matter where I go my southern accent follows me around everywhere 
And so in airports all around this country and even in other parts of the world, I have been asked on several occasions, where on earth are you from? Now, my very own children will poke fun at my pronunciation. Uh, I, pronu- I pronounce the days of the week, I guess, in a funny way. Um, they laugh when I say words like reckon and yonder and fixin'. I've tried to persuade my children that Southern writers with accents far thicker than mine have penned poetry as wondrous as pearls and novels of beauty beyond all conveyance. But alas, that's another sermon for another time. What's my point? My point is this. As noticeable as my southern accent is, as followers of King Jesus, there ought to be another accent that people hear when I speak. I ought to have in all of my words an accent of grace. Ephesians 4.29, again, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. I remember several years ago reading the personal resolutions of Jonathan Edwards. And I remember I was struck by resolution number 70. And Jonathan Edwards resolved in number 70, to do this, quote, Let there be something of benevolence in all that I speak. We should strive by God's grace that whenever possible to shut our mouths if we don't have anything good to say about someone. And if we do speak, If we do speak about someone, we should do it with grace and kindness and truthfulness, but with benevolence in order to build up and to edify others and not to tear down, especially to tear down a brother or sister for whom our blessed Savior shed His precious blood. When we speak with an accent of grace, others, especially non-Christians, should wonder to themselves, where on earth are they from? Now let me conclude our time with three brief gospel applications for us today. Number one, first application. Number one, recognize the uncleanness of your tongue. Recognize the uncleanness of your tongue. Our tongues have all stumbled in many ways, haven't they? And I hope Pastor James has utterly convicted you by the Holy Spirit of the uncleanness of your tongue. You'll remember in Isaiah chapter 6 when the prophet catches a vision of the throne room of God and Isaiah sees the pre-incarnate Christ enthroned in glory, the Holy One of Israel. And you remember what the prophet of God says first. The one who, 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 who literally, who, his whole calling was to speak. The first thing Isaiah says is, Woe is me for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips. 
and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. If you've caught sight of the holiness of the Lord this morning, which is what James wants us to see, then you've recognized, like Isaiah, the uncleanness of your own tongue. And so James wants us to confess that sin to the Lord. He wants us to repent of our unclean tongues. And so we can pray along with the early church that ancient prayer that you can say in one sentence, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Transforming your speech begins with trusting in the Savior. So trust Him today. He can change your heart and He can transform your tongue. Receive Christ today with the empty hands of faith. Cast your soul upon Him, the Savior of sinners, and He will never cast you out. Number two, rejoice that you are a new creation in Christ. Rejoice that you are a new creation in Christ. James chapter 1, verse 18 says, Of God's own will He brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of His creatures. So praise the Lord this morning. If you are in Christ, He has regenerated you. He's made you a new creature, a new creation in Christ. You've been given a new heart and a new nature and new loves and new desires. You've received the Holy Spirit of promise and you've been given a new tongue. And so like King David, we can now pray, Lord, deliver me from my guilt, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. Praise be to God this morning that we are new creatures in Christ. We can say along with John Newton, who said at the end of his life, My memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things, that I am a great sinner and that Christ is a great Savior. I am not what I ought to be, nor what I wish to be, nor what I hope to be. Yet I can truly say that I am not what I once was. And I can heartily say, by the grace of God, I am what I am. So be encouraged, struggling saint, even in the conviction of sin, that if Christ has finished His work for you, He will most certainly finish His work in you. He who began a good work in you will carry it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. So brothers and sisters, rejoice that you are a new creation in Christ. And because you are a new creature in Christ, I want you to briefly consider some of the ways James teaches us in his letter that we might speak with an accent of grace. He gives us so many applications in this letter, and I just want to draw attention to a few of them. So these are these are kind of like uh, Ed's, Edward's resolutions. 
And I got this idea from Sinclair Ferguson, who, who mentioned these in a sermon many, many years ago. And so I want to share them with you. Number one, resolved to ask God for wisdom before we speak. James 1.5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. Resolved, number two, to be constantly quick to hear and slow to speak. James 1.19, know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Resolved, number three, to speak in the consciousness of the final judgment. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. James 2.12 Resolution number four, resolved to resist quarrelsome words as marks of a bad heart. James 4.1, what causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war? within you. Number five, resolved to never speak evil of another. James 4.11, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. Resolved, number six, to never boast in what I will accomplish. To never boast in what I will accomplish. James 4.13, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Resolution number seven, To always speak as one who is subject to the providences of God. To always speak as one who is subject to the providence of, of God. James 4.15 again. Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or do that. Resolution number eight. Resolved. To never grumble. To never grumble knowing that the judge is at the door. James 5.9. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Resolution number nine, to never allow anything but total integrity in my speech. James 5.12, but above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and let your no be no so that you may not fall under condemnation. James 5.12, resolution number 10, resolved to speak to God in prayer when I suffer. James 5.13, Is any one among you suffering? Let him pray. Resolution number 11, Resolved to sing praises to God whenever I am cheerful. James 5.13, Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Resolution number 12, To ask for the prayers of others when I am sick. James 5.14, Is anyone among you sick? Will let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. 
Number 13, resolved to confess it whenever I have failed. To confess it whenever I have failed. James 5.16, therefore confess your sins to one another. Two more, resolved. Number 14, to pray for one another when I am together with others in need. James 5.16, pray for one another that you may be healed. Resolution number 15, resolved to speak words of restoration when I see another person wandering. James 5.19, the last verses of the book says, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Brothers and sisters, there's more, but this is already a long sermon. My point is simply this. The book of James is full of practical advice and counsel and instruction and correction regarding our tongues. And so I would commend you to read through the whole book of James, asking the Lord to give you wisdom to see how we can use our tongues as new creatures in Christ to bring Him glory and to speak to others with an accent of grace. Lastly, number three, we should remember the sacrifice of the Savior. We should remember the sacrifice of the Savior. Brothers and sisters, we cannot read a passage as convicting as this. I cannot preach a passage convicting as this without reminding you of the good news of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who is the friend of sinners, the one who is the Lord of glory, the one who is the shepherd of our souls. Remember, brothers and sisters, how our Savior spoke. Those who heard Him declared that no one, no one ever spoke like this man. He spoke tough words and He spoke tender words and there was no deceit ever found in His mouth. Our Savior never, ever, ever sinned with His tongue. He grew up with a younger brother named James who watched him grow up, and James never saw him utter a sinful word. And Jesus Christ fully bridled his tongue, brothers and sisters, because he is the perfect man. He is the perfect man. When he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. He continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his words, we are healed. With his wounds, we are now healed. And all of us, like sheep, have gone astray, and we have turned every one of us to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, 
yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Isaiah 53, 4-7 Brothers and sisters, why? Why was Jesus silent when he stood before the high priest? Why was Jesus silent when he stood before the judgment seat of Pontius Pilate? Why was he silent when he accepted that sentence of guilt, even though he had done nothing wrong? Our sinless Savior was silent because of every sinful word that has ever proceeded from your tongue and from my tongue. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, so he opened not his mouth. By his wounds, our tongues are healed. Oh, brothers and sisters, what more could you ever want in a Savior than in Jesus Christ? Oh, for a thousand tongues to praise and to sing of our great Redeemer's grace. And when we spend time with our blessed Savior, when we listen to Him talk to us in His Word of grace, do you know what will happen? Over time, eventually, we will begin to sound more and more like Him. And we'll begin to speak more and more like Him with an accent of grace. And maybe, just maybe, someone will wonder, why do they talk with that accent? And maybe, someone will ask, where on earth are you from? Let's pray. Our gracious God, we thank you for all of the amazingly gracious words and even the hard words that you have spoken to us in your word. We thank you for every single one of them. And we pray that we would hear these words and by your spirit that you would transform our tongues. And by transforming our tongues, you would transform our lives, that you would renew our minds, that we might live spiritual and upright and godly lives in this present age so that Jesus Christ, the Savior, will receive the glory and praise and honor. We ask all of this in the Savior's name. Amen.